Hi, everyone. Welcome to Two Bye Guys. I'm so, so excited for this episode. My guest today is Jessica Fern, who wrote Polysecure, which is a book I just love, love, love. I read it a few years ago. I'm going to talk about it a lot more in the interview, so I'll leave it there. But it's an awesome book, and Jessica Fern is great. You're going to like this interview. I just wanted to apologize again. My audio is a bit fuzzy at the beginning because I had the gain setting wrong. It does get better as the episode goes on. Hopefully, you won't notice it. And it is totally fixed in future episodes. This is the last time you will hear me apologize about this. Also, I've launched a new Patreon. If you're not already listening to this there, you can find the link in all our social media bios. You will get early access to episodes as well as bonus content. So maybe you're already listening to this early, but if not, you could be in the future. There are also five extra minutes of this episode on that Patreon. I wanted to put the vast majority of this episode here for free for everyone because it's so great. And I know you'll learn so much from what Jessica shared, but I also wanted to give you some bonus content. So there's five extra minutes for this one. And next episode, I'm talking to Vineet Mehta, repeat guest, about his new book, Bisexual Men Exist. And if you check out the Patreon now, you will get early access to that episode, hopefully pretty soon, depending on when you're listening to this. And that episode will have a ton of bonus content, at least 20 or 30 extra minutes, maybe more. I haven't finished editing yet, but we talked for quite a while. So there's tons of bonus content there and lots more in the future. And without further ado, here is my interview with Jessica Fern. Welcome back to Two Bye Guys, the continuation of book season. I wrote a book, it's coming out soon, and so I'm interviewing every author I love and all their amazing books. And I'm especially excited for today's guest. Her book has really, really helped me on this journey, especially like the next levels of it, not just mm-hmm. the beginning, but but the deep stuff. Uh, and I, I just like, it's my other Bible. I, I, we interviewed Jane Ward and that was my bi Bible. And now this is my poly Bible and it's all marked up. And I, I, I could show you every page has underlines and everything. <laughs> so my guest today is Jessica Fern. She is the author of Poly Secure, Attachment, Trauma and Consensual Non-Monogamy, as well as the Poly Secure Workbook. And her new book, Polly Wise, A Deeper Dive into Navigating Open Relationships, will be published in August. Is that right? In August? Yeah, August 25th. Okay. So that may, by the time you're listening to this, it may already be out. Uh, Jessica is a psychotherapist and coach who works with individuals, couples, and people in multiple partner relationships who no longer want to be limited by their reactive patterns, cultural conditioning, insecure attachment styles, and past traumas helping them to embody new possibilities in life and love. Welcome to Two Bye Guys, Jessica Fern. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I really like, I I think I read this book a couple years ago and I go back to it so often. It's just so, I mean, I really hadn't read anything else like it that really validated the, Mm. the desire to be polyamorous and then all of the different things that can come up within it. And so many of those things make me feel like, oh, Polly's too hard, or maybe it's <laughs> not for me. But, yeah. but really, when you get deep into it, the challenges can be possibilities, and they can teach you things about yourself. And 
you can work on all these things that that lead to the right kind of relationship for each person uh, or e- and each couple. So I, I am dying to talk about it with you. I'm so excited you're here. Good. Um, yeah. Before we get into the book, I always ask, how do you identify? What pronouns do you use on any spectrums you want to identify on? Yeah, I identify as a cat mama. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She, her pronouns, and I identify as polyamorous, as bisexual. Um, Oh, I always get stumped on this question. It's so funny. (laughs) Those are those are the two that yeah. identities that we'll talk the most right. about. So that's, that's great. We're talking about today. Yeah, I mean, I identify yes. as many things, and then I also never feel tightly fitting into those identities. Right. Interesting. Yeah, even like author is a great one. I'm like, oh, I'm technically an author. I don't feel like an author, <laughs> right? So there's yeah. a lot of that for every identity. I could say it is and it isn't all at the same time. Yeah. That makes sense. And for a lot of my identities, I feel like go in waves where like it will be really important to me at a certain time and then it is less important. And like my gender identity is goes in a lot of waves. Yeah, right. And there's the identities I've inherited. There's the ones that I've deconstructed and reconstructed. So, yeah. Cool. Well, let's talk about the bi and poly identities first. Uh, for both of those, I'm curious when... Did you realize that about yourself, accept that? When did you start to tell other people or, you know, incorporate it into your work? What was your evolution like? Yeah, I was 14 years old when I first had a kiss with a girl. And then there was a bunch of us girls and we were growing up in Brooklyn in high, in, uh, high school, Brooklyn, New York. And we all made out one night <laughs> and like I was really lucky that there were several of us that identified as bisexual. So it was kind of normal hmm. um, yeah. to have these like kisses and makeouts and maybe these like, you know, kind of kissing orgies that like we would have, you know, at a party or something like that, <laughs> not full on sex wow. orgies, but just like make out, you know? And so I remember being 14 and being like, Oh, I'm bisexual. And it wasn't wow. that big of a deal. It wasn't a ha, and it felt like, oh, this is great. And my friends knew it wasn't something really to share with adults um, until college when I actually got into my first, like, full on, I'm in love and in a relationship with a woman. And that's when I really came out as bisexual to my family. Cool. Cool. Yeah. And then and then you've just been out since then and dating yeah. whoever. Yeah, dating whoever, and and I was fortunate that my family um, was accepting of it. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I wish I had yeah. some of those multi gender kissing orgies in high school. That sounds fun. <laughs> I know, right? Shouldn't everyone have that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was other fun stuff for me in high school, but it, but it, nothing that crossed the gender lines in such an open, accepted way like that. That I, yeah, remember. yeah, and it's interesting. And it's interesting because in high school, there weren't boys kissing boys. There was girls who can kiss girls in front of boys Mm. and with boys, you know, but it wasn't until college that it was like, oh, my male friends are also included in these kissing experiences with other men, you know, so it it took a while for Mm. that too. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, And what about the poly identity? When did that develop? Yeah, it developed much later. awareness. Yeah, right. Because 
in some ways I was already doing non-monogamy at 14 years old, right? Like, uh-huh. you know, yeah, I'm experimenting yeah. with different people and, you know, having a lot of experiences um, in high school and college that were not monogamous experiences. Um, but it, so, but I wasn't consciously identifying with it. It's just sort of what was right. And again, I was mm-hmm. kind of lucky to have a group of friends that like, that's what we did and it was fine. Right. Um, and then I got into an, a monogamous marriage and it wasn't until being in that marriage and us officially opening up of going, Oh, we're going to be polyamorous. That then it was like, Oh, now it's actually an identity that I need to come out to the world or my family or others too. Yeah. So that happened a few years yep. into that marriage. Yeah. Interesting. It is. I mean, we'll talk more about this later, but there's often this like professed monogamy that most people, you know, claim, but most people are actually non-monogamous for a period up until they get into that monogamous relationship. They just don't think about it as non-monogamy, but that's what dating is for most people. I know. And it's so funny because with David, my first husband, before him, I was with a woman for a few years and, and he knew that. And and then as we were like having dialogues about getting together, I was like, how does my bisexuality, because my bisexuality was an issue with the woman I was dating. And I was like, how is it going to fit into my relationship with you and this marriage that we're going to have? And so it, it sort of was a dialogue. And yet we still were like assuming exclusivity, right? It's really interesting to look back at that. Right. Yeah. yeah interesting. Do you f- think there's any tie in between your bi and poly identity? Like did... Or did one make you think of the other in a certain way? Or are they just separate overlapping things? How do they interact? Yes and no, they're both. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting in general to say, how do we impose monogamy on someone who identifies or feels themselves to be wired bisexually? Right? It's like, mm-hmm. and a good friend of mine who's also bi once said, she's like, one sex or gender is not a supplement for the other right? Or a replacement for the other when you're bisexual, right? So it's like, we're often, we enter relationships with one gender or sex and can be like, oh, what, but is half of me or a percentage of me just never going to exist anymore? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I think there is that awareness, yeah, was there of, oh, is this really going to work because of my bisexuality? But that the catalyst of polyamory did come from more of this place of just feeling in general, regardless of who I was with, that I could love more than one person and they could be the same sex or gender. Right. Yeah. But it was this feeling of like, Oh wow, I know that I'm capable of this and it actually feels what's most right in me. Yeah. It's a very good bisexual answer to say it's a little bit of both. Um, it's a little bit of both, right? Everything's going to be poly, right? <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, everything is on this spectrum. There's often this mi- misconception that all bi people must be poly or, you know, want to have sex with everyone on all the time or hypersexual, which is not the case. But we spend so much time dispelling that myth sometimes that we forget that Maybe bi- I don't many bi people that. do want that. Right. I exactly. mean, many bi people do want to live out their bisexuality on a continuing basis. And I yeah. talked to Dr. Mimi Huang about that, who, who talks a lot about how this polyamory or non-monogamy can be the way to live out that those desires in, in a real way. Um, exactly. And it can be exactly. important for many people. 
Yeah, exactly. Let's get into the book a little. My favorite book, Polysecure. I've read it. I had already read it multiple times, and then I read it again before today. today. Um, and yes, and so your there had been books about polyamory before and non-monogamy, but many people consider your book groundbreaking because of its mm-hmm. uh, connection. The in, you write about the intersection of non-monogamy and attachment theory. Right. So I'm curious why why you decided to do that? What was missing from the conversation before? Why is that an important intersection? Yeah, right. There are books about polyamory, there are books about attachment, and there wasn't a book that had both. And, you know, it it came out of seeing, working with polyamorous clients as a psychotherapist, and as they would describe a lot of like what the challenges were, I was like, oh, these are attachment struggles they're having. (laughs) These are attachment ruptures that are happening, or just the change in structure can create, you know, attachment um, challenges that arise from the change in structure of relationship. And all of the resources, or most of the resources, really didn't address what it is to be non-monogamous and go through attachment ruptures or need attachment healing. And most of the resources that tell you how to cultivate attachment with your partner were very mononormative, very Mm -hmm. mononormative. And it was a partner and I at the time, we were like each other's secondary. We each had like sort of our nesting partner and children, and then we were partners. And we were reading through some attachment stuff. And he was like, we can't do half of these things. And I was like, you're right, we can't, you know, like, because we can't have rituals at home together, you know, and so a lot of the attachment literature before Polysecure really prescribed monogamy as the way to have a secure attachment with somebody, and it left out or even pathologized non-monogamous people. So that was a big problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will get into all that. Before we go on, can you define mononormativity and also like how does that sort of pervade our yeah. thinking about all these things? Yeah. So that would be, um, you know, the belief, the assumption of monogamy being what is normal, right, natural. These are all in air quotes. <laughs> um, what's healthy and that our society supports that, you know, monogamy is the way it's what's supported in many multiple levels, whether it's your plus one or your taxes or your inheritance laws, right. Um, all sort of assume monogamy and, um, and it happens and that's what we inherit. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's like when I was coming out as bi, I started to notice monosexual and, uh, yeah, you know, th- that, concept and like heteronormativity and it but I didn't yet couldn't yet comprehend like mononormativity but then I started to notice how pervasive that was too and how it was actually almost harder to come out as poly to certain people and in certain ways in my life than it was to come out as bi because it's so ingrained I completely agree I completely agree it was the harder one to come out for as me, whereas coming out as bi, people were just celebratory or excited or they didn't care. Um, yeah. Whereas coming out as polyamorous, I think it felt very threatening to them. There was this sense they were yeah. like, don't tell my partner this, he'll want to do it too. <laughs> like, yeah. And I could feel that. It's been people that were partnered. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
I often get like interrogated when I come out as poly, like a lot of oh, yeah. questions and, and that may, I'm curious what you think is the reason for that. Like, is it so, on some level people are afraid that it might be work for them too, but it's too difficult or they don't want it, even though they know it makes sense on some level, or what do you think it is? I think it's a whole cluster of things, right? I think there's a lot of ignorance. And then because of that, there's a lot of microaggressions when you come out to people and they make comments like, you know, oh, your partner's one person's not enough for you, or you want to eat your cake and have your cake and eat it too. You know, there's all of that that happens, which is from ignorance. Um, oh, you have an attachment issue, that kind of stuff. Um, but I do think most of us know I'm not attracted to solely one person for my entire life. <laughs> and, you know, somewhere along the way you realize, yeah, this is a social construct that has been created as humans. And statistically, it's not one that is actually being practiced. Um, mm -hmm. And it is scary to think that your partner could be with someone else. It could be very threatening, right? So I think people hear about it and we are worried, oh no, what if I want this and my partner doesn't? Or what if I don't want this and my partner does? What do we do? Yeah. Well, and that's why for me, in, in many ways, your book is so good for people of any relationship structure, even yeah. monogamous people, yeah. just to look at things in a different way outside of the structure of monogamy and to not let those structures dictate you know that you have a good relationship but to really dig in either way um yes. we'll, we'll get to more of that in a minute yes but good. uh let's do like a little i don't we could spend all day talking about attachment theory i could do an entire podcast series about it but let's just do a little basic so people can uh understand what we're talking about afterwards and the thing i want to ask you is like so i've read about attachment theory before i knew there's four styles it's secure attachment. That's kind of what we're all striving for. Dismissive, preoccupied, and fearful mm -hmm. avoidant. So those are yes. sort of the four categories. But I kind of always had trouble figuring out which one I was and remembering what they meant. And then I read your book and I realized why. You put them on a spectrum and you yeah. have two axes and the four quadrants are the four styles. And it it helped me so much to visualize it and to realize I'm not just one distinct style. I'm, exactly. I'm a point on this spectrum and I'm a little bit of, of multiple. So can you talk about the, what the axes are and that, what that spectrum is? Yeah. And that's from Michelinser and Shaver, their research, right? Academic research, which doesn't always get into the mainstream, right? And it was, it's a great resource yeah. that they created in a model they created that it's not just these four typologies and you're in one box, right? But it is these two axis, axes. And of course, my mind's blanking. It's um, your, <laughs> your level of attachment avoidance right? Whether you're high or low in attachment avoidance or not. So am I, you know, leaning in or am I pulling back? And then am I high or low on how much anxiety I'm experiencing? And depending on where you are within that, you tend to look more secure, preoccupied, dismissive, or fearful, withdrawn. But what you're saying too is like, oh, I can feel one of these styles most of the time. And then when I'm triggered or in stress, I feel a different one. And I move up and down, maybe even within the same quadrant, right? Um, right? Or with different people, we experience different styles. We usually do not have the same style with our parents or our caregivers growing up. Yeah. 
Right. It really helped me because I always thought I was in, you know, I had mostly anxiety about relationships. I was anxious to, to be too enmeshed with someone. And I guess that leads me to be dismissive, the dismissive style, right? But yes. then I realized I'm, I'm not always that way. If with certain partners or in cer- at certain times, I moved into that other column where I would be preoccupied. So it, yeah, I've moved exactly. around. Yeah, right. We move around and our childhood can dictate these styles a lot, right? But our adult experiences can change them as well. So positive experiences in adulthood of having a partner or relationship where you're really, there's like, you're being met, you're being loved, you're being appreciated. That can move us into feeling more secure. Um, going through a divorce, we can have a phase after that where we feel more insecure in our attachment style. Um, I just in my own therapy this week was talking about I had a, a friend a few months ago who was very close and who completely lied to me to my face and it ended the friendship. And now mm. I'm having this like, oh, I was like, yeah, I'm having this total avoidant response now to like new friendships people who want are trying to reach out and I'm like not looking at texts and I was like what's going on oh right I just had an attachment rupture at the friend level and Mm. you know my style has adapted ideally it's just temporary to because of that right that's really interesting how it's I mean that was a new concept to me that it's fluid over time but it makes so much sense because that's how I feel about my sexuality as well yeah. And so, of course, it is. Um, you, your book has a lot of spectrums and fluidity uh, uh, that just made so much sense from that queer from point yours. of view. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I like from the my spectrum. experience. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, and, you know, it's uh, this gets into what I want to talk about next, which is like we often look at relationships as like good or bad, healthy or unhealthy or abusive. And like, it's actually a spectrum and things can move. Can you talk about how attachment affects like relationship dysfunction versus attunement, how it affects boundaries? Like you, you have, you have another um, uh, spectrum, spectrum there. Yeah. Where, where like things that are good, like autonomy and connection can, can then sometimes go too far and turn into isolation or codependence. Um how does attachment theory relate to all that and how does that work? Yeah, the way I was relating it is we can take these styles, especially the insecure ones, and often they're sort of problematized, pathologized. And yet I'm like in them are sort of these innate drives or desires that we have as humans to be autonomous, independent on one end of that spectrum and to have connection on the other end and intimacy. Right. Um, and so the the um, avoidant attachment, they're really good at that autonomy piece and that independent piece. Right? They have skills and capacities to advocate for themselves and their needs and their privacy. But then it can go too far where the boundaries become too rigid and I start to become isolated or I'm shut off or I'm closed down. I'm not letting things in or I'm not letting things out in terms of love or affection or even thoughts and opinions, right? So the boundaries get too rigid on that end usually. And then on the other end, you know, connection, it can go too far into this fusion or like you said, it can be a codependency where there's this loss of self and the boundaries are too fluid. Um, 
maybe that's not the right word, fluid, the boundaries are too porous. That's what I use in the book, mm -hmm. right? Um, where there's a breakdown of self and other, you know, at, at the expense then even of connection. So, and that's usually the preoccupied style where there's too much focus on the other and I'm losing myself in this relationship. Yeah. Right. right. And, and your book for everyone listening, like the book goes really into detail on what all that can look like and lots of examples yeah. of how that happens. So like for me, I was sort of leaning, I, I was a very independent person in relationships for a long time. And I think part of that was because of, I wasn't out as bisexual. And so I needed a certain distance from partners to, to maintain that, even though in hindsight, mm. I shouldn't have, yeah. but, but I put that distance there. And then as I started, as I started coming out, I moved, moved along that spectrum more toward connection, but because I didn't have those skills, really, I hadn't practiced that. I in sometimes went too far into fusion and codependence and, your book went through what that can look like and really helped me kind of notice it and and also helped me realize connect looking for connection isn't a bad thing exactly. that's good skills i'm learning but anything can go too far and you have to have boundaries on both ends right we can drink too much water <laughs> and hurt ourselves <laughs> right yeah. yeah. So it's like the good nourishment that we need to subsist can go too far as well into something that then yeah. becomes toxic. Yeah. So it's, it is, it's finding that balance of these two things. How in your practice or in your life, how do people find that balance? Like it, I mean, it's, it's hard for me. I sometimes feel like I'm bouncing back and forth. How do you like recommend people find the balance besides just reading your book? If I'm working with someone, I mean, we, we talk through, okay, what are the obstacles to these things on either end, right? What's in the way of feeling more autonomous and independent in a healthy way of being okay with yourself and being alone or knowing yourself and being able to then advocate for your wants and needs and desires, right? What's in the way of that? And then working through that right? That, you know, we can start to take steps to practice those things. And it's going to look different, of course, person by person. And then on the other end, what are the obstacles to being close and connected, right? What are the fears of intimacy that might come up um, and working through that? Interesting. Yeah. I, it's always like, I kind of always looked at this stuff as like, this is how I am and I need to fix this thing and then I'll be fine. But actually it's just kind of a lifelong dance of figuring out where you are now and how that's working with different partners. And uh, you wrote, I'm going to read this quote because I loved it. Right. You wrote, with time and practice, we gain the ability to simultaneously tighten and loosen the reins without tightening so hard that we hurt or jerk the horse or loosening so much that communication and direction are lost. So it ju that just helped me really see that like, it's okay to be constantly checking in and tightening and loosening and trying different things to, to find that equilibrium. And it's hard. It is. Yeah. You have to be aware of it. Yeah. Before we get into actually the polyamory of it, uh, last question about attachment theory, like in your experience, how do across the gender spectrum, how do people yeah. approach attachment differently? And, you know, we, we talk a lot about masculinity and patriarchy on this podcast and like 
how how does that sometimes conflict with the skills that are necessary for attunement? Yeah, in a general way, that's my caveat. It's not for every person, but generally men are more conditioned to be what looks like the avoidant dismissive attachment and women are more conditioned or feminine masculine, you know, are more conditioned to be preoccupied and focusing on connection and, you know, and tuning in to the relationship. And men get more of a free pass to not have to be as attuned. And, you know, neither of that really works out. That's what a lot of people come to complaint their complaints when they're looking for to work on their partnership. So yeah, there's a definite yeah. cultural gender conditioning that can push us in certain directions with these attachment styles. However, of course, people of any sex or gender can, you know, be in any of these four categories. Yeah, I I actually think I, I quoted your book a couple of times in my book, in mostly <laughs> in a chapter, mostly in a chapter about polyamory, because some of the couples I interviewed are exploring non-monogamy. Many remain mm-hmm. monogamous. But uh, I think I also quoted you in a chapter about masculinity and because you wrote the plights of men are often dismissed and unseen since men are regarded as the ones wielding all the power, all the privilege and power. But what happens when the same societal structures that grant men superiority also deny them the full range of human emotions and threaten their status as men? If they experience even the slightest form of sensitivity, vulnerability, or indication of their needs for love, emotional safety, and tenderness. And like so much of your book and what polyamory requires, because it's really hard. I mean, we're about to talk about that, but it's, I think it's worth it, but it's so hard. And it really, you have to push back against at least what I was taught about what it means to be a man. And what what it means to be a man fits, fits pretty well with monogamy, but that didn't fit well with me. Exactly. Yeah. I drink a ton of water. I just constantly have a bottle of water with me wherever I go. I love to hike. I love to play tennis. I love to bike. I like to swim. But sometimes I do feel like the water just kind of passes through me and it's never enough. And I constantly need more. And It wasn't until very recently I was introduced to Liquid IV. I actually was introduced to it on the picket line. I'm on strike with the Writers Guild, and there's been a lot of days of walking in circles in the hot sun. So somebody was passing it out, I tried it, I loved the taste of it, and after pouring one in one bottle of water and drinking that, I felt so much different than just drinking water alone. And I've been realizing that you lose a lot when you're sweating that is more than just water. And so you kind of need to replenish it. Just one stick of liquid IV and 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times as fast and more efficiently than water alone. And it has no artificial sweeteners and zero sugar which I love because I am not a huge fan of juice and soda and sugary drinks. So you can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code 2 guys at checkout. That's T-W-O-B-I-G-U-I-S. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code 2 guys at liquidiv.com. Let's get into polyamory and non-monogamy. 
we so we kind of talked about monogamy seen as the ideal and why that is and do you think that's changing at all at, but and also Absolutely. like can you talk yeah go ahead talk about that first is that changing now <laughs> and why it is changing it's yeah, I mean, there's certain studies of showing out people who are in their 20s are more likely to not assume monogamy in the same way that um, I did in my 20s. It seemed like you as well, mm-hmm. you know, and the generations before. Obviously, our parents and grandparents would have mostly assumed it as well. So it really is changing, and more and more people are considering it and exploring it or practicing it full out. Yeah. Yeah, and it and comes I, and off. It's- Go ahead. That's what I was going to say. It's following uh, changes in other areas that are related, right? Exactly, right. We're in, you know, several decades now of deconstructing white supremacy, patriarchy, gender roles, um, you know, heterosexuality, all the isms and the norms, right? And and monogamy had to get on the chopping board at some point (laughs) with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you all, I think I quoted this in my book too, but you also wrote about um, the statistics on the divorce rate in America and statistics on cheating. And so has monogamy actually even been the norm or have we just been pretending that it is? It's the espoused norm. And in practice, it does not actually seem to be the norm. I mean, when you look at how many people admit, that's the key word, admit (laughs) to cheating. So there's probably more that don't admit to it. It's like, oh, wow, it's more than not, people are not actually practicing monogamy. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to make sure, I mean, I'm not anti-monogamy though. I really, I mean, there's phases, even as a polyamorous person, I've gone through several phases of being exclusive with partners because that's what we needed. And that's what was best for us. Right. And for many people, it's completely a valid choice. And I think what we're advocating for is great. Monogamy is a valid choice, but then polyamory also needs to be a valid choice. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And and as poly as I am at the moment, I also, with my current primary partner, have had phases of monogamy. When we started dating, we wanted to do that. When the pandemic hit, obviously, we did that. Exactly. Uh, and so th- there were personal reasons and also societal reasons that we reasons. wanted that. <laughs> it, it worked. It worked when we needed it. And then we were able to sort of come come in and out and make the choice for ourselves, but not feel locked in by expectations. Right. And so even thinking of your original question, I probably identify more technically as polyfluid. Right. Because it's like, yeah, I feel like my essence is actually polyamorous, but it's a fluid in practice. It's fluid and it changes. Yeah, I like that. That's I like that word. Uh, that can be your third book. <laughs> Polyfluid. <laughs> so for you or for people you've worked with or met, like what causes people to think about non-monogamy or to choose consensual non-monogamy? Um, what type of people go there? Um, I mean, statistically, it's all types of people. There isn't just sort of one type of race, class, you know, all of those um, ways of identifying people or categorizing humans, you know, on a survey. Right? Mm-hmm. But it's I usually see, though, it seems to be two different things. Some people just feel this is innately who they are. Whether they identify as bisexual or as straight, they feel that they are wired to love more than one person or to be sexual. So they can identify more as polysexual or polyromantic. 
um, it feels like who they are and it doesn't feel like a choice that they're necessarily making to like, now I'm going to live this certain lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people are like, they learn about it and they're like, that's just what makes sense. <laughs> this is a lifestyle that I'm choosing. It's philosophically what I agree with, or it just practically even makes more sense because they, you know, have cheated themselves or they know what the cheating rates are. They've been cheated on. Right. So I think I see that's usually where, you know, people come to it, um, yeah. you know, or they have a partner that suggested it. Yeah. I, I mean, I've told this story before, but I feel like my poly nature comes from when I was younger and my parents, we adopted my sister. I was 11 years old and she was 18 months and I had been an only child and I didn't like the idea at first. And my parents explained that my love would grow to include her. And so would theirs. And it wasn't like the love for me would then be divided between two siblings that it would stay the same for me. And then some more love would grow to include my sister. And, you know, that made, that made sense to me and it brought me around to the idea. And then I just kind of think I always saw love in that way. I didn't connect it to polyamory for years, but even though my parents are monogamous and had a lot of trouble understanding polyamory for some reason, they are the ones that taught me that love is not a finite thing. Yeah. It's like a muscle that can grow. Exactly. And I use that example that you're giving a lot of when people choose to have or adopt a second or third or, you know, subsequent child, they would never say that first child, well, we're doing this because it's just not enough, <laughs> right? Yeah. We, we don't love this child really, right? It's usually this draw, right? The eros of expansion and, and to have more love and more family and more connection, is why mm-hmm. we want more children or we want more than one best friend. Right. Yeah. So we, we know it in those contexts that we wouldn't expect to only have one. I make so much sense. A, a lot of people look at non-monogamy or polyamory as this like monolithic experience and often a stereotypical one that's like, mm-hmm. oh, they're all hypersexual. They just want to have yeah. sex with everyone. Um, but again, you had a spectrum in the book with two axes that shows the range of different types of non-monogamy can you we don't have to go to every bullet point on there but can you briefly talk about that spectrum so one axis is um high or low on sexual exclusivity and then high or low on emotional exclusivity so the way we usually define monogamy you would be high on sexual exclusivity and high on emotional exclusivity Whereas polyamory is kind of the other end where I'm lower on emotional exclusivity and lower on sexual exclusivity, right? Or I'll throw in one more. Um, Most people have heard of swingers who tend, not always, but tend to be couples who are high on emotional exclusivity. We're not really falling in love with anyone else. That's not the plan, at least. But we are lower on sexual exclusivity. We enjoy and play with multiple sexual partners, Right. So, you know, there's probably five or six other ones that I throw in there. And um, I'm sure there's going to be more that even, you know, weren't included in the book, of course. Right. Right. And and it just shows you that people like fear the the emotional having no emotional exclusivity. And they think that's what they sort of have to do if they're transitioning to non-monogamy. But 
there's there's many different possibilities and it depends on the couple making that choice. No, yeah, I agree. Exactly. It depends on the person I'm with or the phase of life that I'm in too. Yeah, of what makes the most sense, right? Because often like let's yeah. say you might have a polyamorous partnership that then has a child. And that might be a phase where they go, oh, we haven't been very hierarchical, but now we are going to be because we're taking care of this infant. Yeah. 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 I, I, I also I've only in the past couple of months started going to a poly discussion group in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and I love it so much. It's like so nice to be in a room full of people who think about these things in a similar way to me and validate being poly and have gone through some of the challenges I've been through. So highly recommend looking for a group like this for anyone who's exploring it. But one thing that did happen recently was like we were doing sort of definitions for new people. And, you know, it's like this is what non-monogamy is and it's different from poly and it's different from swinging. And in some respects, I think that's useful to, to think about how many different versions of this there are. But I really think that spectrum is the most useful thing because to me, they're all they're a little bit different, but they're on a spectrum and it can change and it's you know they're not totally distinct yeah exactly yeah this podcast is sponsored by zencaster and we are also part of the zencaster creator network you've probably heard me talk about this many times but i love zencaster it has made everything so easy for me and streamlined and has made sure the quality of this podcast is as high as it possibly can be the first couple seasons were pretty haphazard and i needed a better solution and i found it with zencaster this is our fourth season on zencaster third season in the creator network which has been awesome but the main thing is it is so easy it's an all-in-one tool it's all in your browser you don't need to download anything you're guest doesn't need to download anything. You just send them a link, you show up in the browser, and Zencaster takes care of everything. It has never dropped audio, even when the internet goes out. It has never dropped video. And everything is recorded locally so that it is the best quality you can get, whatever equipment you're using. The podcast sector is always changing, but it is still growing. And if you've been thinking about starting a podcast or sharing your stories, now is the time to do it. So go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code 2 guys, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. This is a big question. It's what sort of the (laughs) second half of your book is about, but an intro for people, you know, how, how does attachment style affect the way we practice or approach non-monogamy? Yeah. Attachment style has a huge impact in any relationship. So of course it has a huge impact in monogamy as well. Right. But what happens in polyamory is you don't have that same structural security that exists in monogamy. And so that for some people is liberating, but for other people, it can be quite anxiety inducing and they can start to have this more anxious preoccupied attachment that they might have had before or a lot of times people like they didn't have it at all before Mm -hmm. right so just that structural shift um, can change our attachment style 
right? Or if people were partnered in monogamy before, they might find they open up and their attachment style completely changes. So it's like sort of how polyamory can influence. There's two directions. So what your first one we're saying here is polyamory can change our attachment style or influence it, right? In either way, we can become more secure, insecure, but to be aware that as you make a paradigm shift, that shift is impacting the attachment system, Mm -hmm. right? And we might feel more secure because we're like, oh, I'm getting multiple needs met by multiple partners. That's amazing, right? Or because of you alluded to it before, polyamory does require a higher um, relational intelligence and relational skill set. <laughs> and that can actually help us feel more secure in our relationships when we're having dialogues that we've never had before about needs and wants and agreements. Um, but there can also be a lot of inconsistencies. You don't have access to a partner all the time in the way that you expect to in monogamy. And that can create you know, anxious or avoidant experiences in our attachment system. Yeah. And then there's the other, but do you want to say anything about that first? No, no, go for it. Yeah. The other direction is what does each attachment style look like in polyamory? So if I'm more preoccupied versus if I'm, you know, functioning from more of an avoidance style and we can name it, but I, you know, I'm a hesitant because I don't want people to, that's where the stereotypes or the biases come in because people then say, oh, that's what polyamory is, right? So if you're someone who is more, in functioning from a dismissive avoidance style, it might look like I have multiple partners and I don't actually commit or it's more casual or when someone starts to get in close, I push them away and then I just switch partners, I jump ship. But that's not actually what people really doing polyamory are doing, right? But does it happen? Yeah. Yes, it does, right? <laughs> right. That my polyamory yeah. can be a nice way to keep everyone's at arm's length where I have partners, but I'm not truly investing in any one person or any few people, right? Same thing with the preoccupied. Oh, I never have to feel alone because there's always someone <laughs> that I have, Right. Yeah. And it can be a grasping on to sort of a romantic phase of relationship that I never have to feel the transition into a different phase of relationship that's not just new relationship energy. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we yeah. actually at my discussion group talked about new relationship energy for a whole, yeah. a whole couple hours one time. What, what it, what's that and how does that affect the poly experience? And yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, new relationship energy sort of is just that. It's the heightened energy, um, but it's really a whole entire hormonal neurochemical cocktail um, that, you know, of dopamine, adrenaline, um, oxytocin, you know, that we're getting really bathed in more of these hormones and neurochemicals. And we are altered. We are in an altered state of consciousness as if we took a drug in this phase of new relationship energy. We're excited, we're hyper-focused, we're a little obsessed, right? We're in love, we're dreamy, we can stay up, like those hormones help us, just like if you took something, you could stay up late, right? We can stay up late, you know, be on our bedtime and have more sex, like there's, you know, we push through our own physical boundaries in this phase or limitations. And then eventually, you know, it's, it's designed, so they say, to help us bond and really create this sweet, loving connection. So it's not all bad. Yeah. It's not meant to be forever. Yeah. And that's where a lot of us struggle, right? It's, it's our bodies actually can't sustain that level of heightened 
altered state of consciousness and neurochemistry. So eventually we shift out of it and those hormones abate. And then most people feel like they think the relationship's over or it's lagging, right? Where it's really an mm -hmm. opportunity to go into deeper intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. So some people, yes, they're chasing new relationship energy in their polyamory. That absolutely happens. Is up giving, you know, a year, year and a half when the hormones start to abate, I pick up a new partner and I don't have to feel, you know, the uh, withdrawals. Right. That makes so much sense. And it's so validating, I think, to think about my relationships with that framing because, yes, yeah, sometimes like you get worried. My relationship isn't the same as it was when we started. Does that mean something's wrong or we don't love each other as much? But it's helpful to, to understand and internalize that relationships go through an evolution. And, and hopefully when people are out there seeking new relationship energy time after time, you would start to notice that and that can help you learn about your reactions to that too and help you, you know, understand what's going on. Exactly. I mean, just this morning I was thinking about, so the phase after new relationship energy, it's called symbiosis by some people or the romance phase. It then shifts into differentiation, which is often the conflict phase. Hmm. Oh, now we're actually being two autonomous people that don't always agree and don't always want the same things. And we have to, can we be different and actually work through it? And, and can we, you know, now our shadows are showing up in the relationship. It's not all lovey-dovey and easy. My shit's coming forward. Can we work through that and then really integrate? And this morning I was like, I mean, should anyone even commit? until they go through the conflict phase, which takes a few years, <laughs> like, you know, like right. lifelong commitment, of course, commit to being in the relationship. But you see, most people commit lifetime or long-term commitment while still in that romance phase, and they haven't yet encountered the realities of this human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it's hard. <laughs> that makes so much sense to me. And I mean, I, I, I think I've had a healthy fear of commitment for like, I had an unhealthy fear of commitment at first. And now I have right. a healthy one where like, okay, this is good. But you know, uh, we'll, we'll see. I don't need to commit forever yet. Yeah, exactly. I have a partner of a year and we're over a year now, but we're still in, we're still in a lot of the romance phase. And yeah, I can feel, oh, look at this part of me that just wants to like vow my love forever and then wants him to say that to me. <laughs> and then yeah, this other yeah. part of me is like, well, just, you know, give it two more years before you even have that conversation at least. Yeah. 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 Well, and you mentioned this, but I, I just want to hit it again because this is something that really stuck with me so much from the book and I see it all the time, which is mostly monogamous people, although anyone, uh, you, they allow the structures of monogamy or tradition or like what society looks at as these benchmarks like marriage and buying a house and having a kid and being financially stable together. Like these benchmarks are signs that the relationship is working and it's good and it's secure. Yeah. And actually it can mask insecurity, attachment insecurity inside of there. Exactly. And we all know that that happens because a lot of people get divorced or a lot of people are unhappy in marriages. And yet so many people don't break out of that framing. And so you wrote, and I think I did quote this in my book, you wrote, 
allow your experience, allow your direct experience with a partner to be the vehicle to secure attachment instead of having certain relationship concepts, narratives, or structures be the vehicle. And I saw yeah. that play out in all the, in all the interviews I did for my book that's, that some people were looking at those structures, some people were, and some people were shifting to look at their actual attachment with their partner. And that usually what seemed healthier to me. Can you talk about yeah. how that looks and plays out? Yeah, that we need to be paying attention to our relational experience. Like, and it's, it's not denying at all where I'm not denying that structures do have an impact. We can feel more secure and safe when certain structures are in place, even if it's um, just defining a relationship or defining your level of interest or commitment, right? Not just things like marriage or, you know, we own something together, right? So some structures, I think some structure is even needed. Some structure, though, can go too far, and that's the only. If that's the only way you're actually feeling safe and secure, then it becomes problematic and usually backfires, right? Because then a few years in, or at some point, one partner is making these bids. We, I want more intimacy. I want more closeness. <laughs> we haven't been doing that, right? It's not what we actually mm -hmm. signed up for. So, yeah, that regardless of what structures we have or don't have, we can enhance our secure attachment through focusing on the relational experience of how am I showing up for you? How are you showing up for me? Cool. Yeah. So the qualities of experience we have. Yeah. And so this isn't something we'll get into here, but it's why everyone listening must buy the book is that in the, in the chapters that talk where Jessica talks about this stuff, she lists so many examples of what this can look like, what it can look yeah. like with different attachment styles with different attachment style pairings. And it was, I, I mean, I have so much underlined in that section of like, oh, this, you know, this thing is me and this thing is me. And, uh, and it helped me notice what's going on and connect it back to, to these things, as opposed to thinking, oh, we're, we're incompatible or right. there's, there's a problem with my partner that she needs to fix, but actually, oh no, these are, things that come up based on polyamory and attachment styles and you just have to communicate through them and you you can when you're you have clarity about what's going on and your book exactly. gave me that oh good i'm so glad <laughs> that said it's still very hard it's not like a, oh right. check, check box and then it's done right exactly it doesn't mean it's easy Another thing that people talk about a lot in polyamory or a reason many people give for not wanting to try non-monogamy is jealousy. They would be too yeah. jealous uh, or they see that as a problem or or a warning sign of in some way. But you write that jealousy can actually be, quote, an opportunity for in increased clarity and connection. Yes. How does that work? Yes. Well, it's all our approach to not sort of be afraid of whatever's arising, what, whatever emotional experience is arising. And in this case, jealousy to see it as an, I see it as an important messenger. That's either pointing to something within myself that needs to be looked at and cared for and or pointing to something in the relationship that needs to be tended to. And we have such funny cultural ideas with jealousy that it's 
bad. It can get you to kill someone if you feel jealous, right? It's so dangerous, right? Or you're supposed to feel jealous if you don't feel jealous and you don't really love your partner. Mm -hmm. So it's very confusing of, well, I'm supposed to feel jealous. I'm not supposed to feel jealous. If I'm taken over by jealousy, I could, you know, do these wild things. So I think people that are non-monogamous, we just say, yeah, it's a human experience and we just need to relate to it together. And, and that can lead to a deepening in that moment between people. Yeah. I love yeah. that. It, it used to get me up very uptight to feel jealous or especially the other way when a partner of mine felt jealous. And now I, I can kind of not be so scared of that because we've gone through it and I don't think it'll break the relationship. But now I can then lean in and ask why or what's what is the issue get to the bottom of it exactly thanks for listening to two bye guys this episode with jessica fern is almost over not yet there's a little more but there's also more on my new patreon about five extra minutes of bonus content with jessica fern you really won't want to miss it she is so awesome we continued talking a little bit more about jealousy and jessica's experience with that and other things that were taught to repress from childhood essentially And we also talked about why polyamory is relatively insecure compared to monogamy and why Jessica thinks that actually can be a good thing and make you feel more secure, even though polyamory is less secure. I quoted that part of her book in my book. So head to Patreon to listen to that. The link is in all our social media bios and also in the show notes of this episode. And now here's a little bit more with Jessica Fern. Uh, so the title of the book is Poly Secure. We kind of have talked about this, but what does it really mean to be poly secure? And also, do you, you wrote the book, but do you feel that way? Are there still things you struggle with in this space? Mm-hmm. Great question. Well, the word poly secure, the phrase is meant to point to the secure attachment we need with self to navigate being non-monogamous as everything we've said, it's it's relatively less secure of a relational structure, right? So we need to have a more internal security um, and to navigate the more the multiple complexities of having more partners, um, as well as then being in secure relationships, secure functioning with multiple people. Right? So we can be in secure relationship with more than one person, and we need to have that internal secure attachment as well. And one of the myths, I think, of secure attachment is that you think you never have insecure moments, mm-hmm. right? So that I can be securely attached, but I still will have insecurities come up. I still have fears that come up. I just have the ability, capacity, and commitment to talk about that and bring it up so it doesn't actually become a style of relating itself. It's more of, you know a temporary experience that's happening that needs attention. So yes, I do feel like in moments I can say, yes, I feel very poly secure. (laughs) And which includes in that, that that doesn't mean I always feel completely secure within myself or with others, but I'm committed to the process of returning to that in those relationships or with myself. Yeah. 
Right. Those challenges and insecurities are are part of it. And being polysecure means you've learned to address them and notice them and be comfortable talking about them with partners and getting to the bottom of it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. So there's so much more in the book. I, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the secure attachment with self because we didn't have time, but there's there's a lot about that, that in the right? book. I know there's a lot about how to practice polysecurity, the hearts of being polysecure. There's a chapter that's great. I highly encourage everyone to pick up the book if you're thinking about polyamory or even if you're not, if you are committed to monogamy i still think this book can be great for you to notice like how are you relating with your partner versus what is a structural security so polysecure is available everywhere polywise will be out in august 2023 and hopefully you'll come back on the podcast next year to discuss that and yes. uh, you can visit yes please because there's so much more to talk about um mm-hmm. you can visit jessicafern.com for more for links to the books for seminars and webinars for uh, information about your psychotherapy practice and coaching and uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast Jessica yeah thank you so much for just loving the book up and your support of, of my work and your commitment to yourself and diving in yeah I'm just very touched thank you Two Bad Guys is produced and edited by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman. Our music is by Ross Mincer. We are supported by the Gotham, and we are part of the Zencaster Creator Network. Use promo code 2 Guys to get 30% off. Thanks for listening to Two Bad Guys. <laughs>